Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, from the very bottom of my heart for continuing to listen to The Tully Show. Before we get into this week's episode, a very brief reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. You know, I like this show, The Tully Show. I like it a lot. But if I had to quibble with something, it is very much a one-way flow of information. I find the guests. I find the topics that I talk about you. Just sit on your hands and listen. That is very much not the case at my Patreon, where it is all about patron participation patron input listeners like you supply almost all of the news headlines i talk about on tully time every week listeners ask the questions i ramble about on rambling man listeners confess their most embarrassing musical pleasures on the monthly guilty pleasure show and that's just like three out of 95 monthly shows i'm doing there month in month out Come on and join the fun at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape. From an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, publicist to the stars, perhaps the only guest in Tully Show history who was familiar with the show before agreeing to visit it, and author of Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew, and Cold Chillin' Records. Hello and welcome, Ben Merlis. Hi, Ben. Hello. Tully! I got to do the Mark McGrath intro. <laughs> it's so weird. You really are. I think you are the only person who's ever been. I know that there have been, um, there's been a guest or two over the years who did their due diligence and sampled. But you've actually, you've actually listened to this show. Big fan. Uh, Spotify informs me that I listen to your podcast, this podcast, more than any other in the year 2021, which is quite an accomplishment because, boy, did I do a lot of podcast listening in 2021. Well, thank you for that. That's surprising to me just because I'm not a very, I'm not as prolific a podcaster as as I would like to be. I'm so ass backwards. This show is my flagship, and yet it is literally for my solo endeavors anyway literally consistently last on the list of things that i that i that i do i do dumb music pods for my patreon way more regularly than i actually get around to doing like my actual show but but thank you for that yeah i think it's because i discovered you so late in the game that i went back and listened to old up you know binged old episodes really so, i don't know if i've oh, ever yeah. i don't know if i've ever been binged before that's great yeah. Any feedback? Anything I need to know before we move forward here? Get Mark McGrath a better mic. <laughs> Get, hold, hold on. Uh, you mean like fucking this one that I own? That if I could just see the man, I could. I'm showing you a microphone that would be that would dramatically will someday dramatically raise. Mark McGrath's um, uh, podcast contribution game. If only I can 
meet the man. I, like, sometimes I fantasize about just flying to a Sugar Ray show so that I can worm my way up to the front so that I can hand him this fucking microphone so that I can say, hey, hey, Mark, plug this into your phone next time and we can do podcasts and you don't need to be back in. Uh... It's funny when I talk to him, you, you know, he's had a couple of uh, cameos go kind of viral. And that's that's where I talk to him. I talk to cameo. I, I only talk to cameo Mark in this day and age. I only talk to Mark McGrath when he is in Southern California and I don't know why. Yeah. it kind of defeats the purpose of what we do with zoom and all that stuff. In, given, in, given that I've done two shows with him in person ever, the fact that we only zoom when, <laughs> when he's in his house, we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there. But I got, I, I got, I'm spinning a lot of plates and right now we are, we're not here to talk about, the new music of 1982 we're here well i guess we kind of are here to talk yeah about the maybe there's of... some some stuff in my book goes back that far most of it's a little later than that though so i will confess my almost total ignorance to the music of the juice crew and cold chillin records which is kind of embarrassing and strange for me to admit First of all, because I'm sort of a completist when it comes to popular music and uh, and and 80s stuff, but also because the names of most of the artists are names I'm totally familiar with. I just never, somehow I never quite made it all the way to like Big Daddy Kane and all that. But this is something I gather it's one of your particular favorites. You wrote a goddamn book about it. Uh, Big Daddy Kane in particular, I would say start there. He's, mm -hmm. in my opinion, the greatest uh, rapper who's ever lived and thankfully he's still with us and he's the first rapper I interviewed for my book um, but if you've only ever heard one song that was released on Cold Chillin' Records by a member of the Juice Crew which is the hip-hop collective that most of the early roster um, consists of it would be Just a Friend by Biz Markie. Yeah, it's so embarrassing because, yeah, I was almost like skipping to the parts in your book about Bismarck because that was that was my way in. It really is. Um, it you know, rap made its way into the mass consciousness primarily as you'd almost have to call novelty records, even if the artists themselves didn't consider them novelty records. And I remember when that song was big. I remember when he got sued because he did the a song that was knocked off of the commercial jingle of a local electronics store. Right. Nobody beats the whiz. That's exactly Wait, right. You're from Rutherford, Rutherford, New Jersey. Is that right? This is creepy, Ben. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you know what that is. I'm from Los Angeles, California. When he sings, nobody, when TJ Swan, this guy who sings on Bismarcky records yeah. sings, nobody beats the biz. To me, it's a new song because we didn't see those commercials in Los Angeles. It's a, you know, New York area electronics store. But yeah, I learned that much later on that uh, Bismarcky had a knack for reappropriating things here and there, which he got into trouble for later. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the whole hip hop thing. It's rapping over other people's records and just taking things here and there from co popular culture and kind of putting it in a blender. Right. In a way that the culture wasn't really ready to reckon with at large, you know, uh, which is why the, the genre was largely dismissed by the critical mainstream for so long. And obviously from just a strictly business sense, the, the music industry didn't know how to reckon with people who weren't covering songs, but were also clearly using music that other people had created before them. But that's getting 
closer to the end of the story than the beginning. You know the behind the scenes what's going on in my house right now. It's just a fucking, uh, it's a sick ward. It's a COVID nightmare. 15 feet on top of me right now. Ben, I didn't spend quite as much time with your book as I like to, as I typically do with, uh, with authors, but I, I got through a decent chunk of it and I found the, the, the first third or so of it. Very, very intriguing. Let's start with your way into this story. Why out of all the books you could have spent, I, I've worked on books. It's incredibly tedious and I didn't do the amount of interviews that I'm sure you did. How many, how many people did you interview for this book? Somewhere in the ballpark of 30, Two, three, four, five, something like that. Low 30s, mid 30s. In general, how easy or hard, how many people were happy that somebody gave a shit about their contribution to not a, a, a you, I think you put it very, very well in the book where you say that that uh, Cold Chillin' is the stacks to Def Jam's Motown. So not insignificant by any stretch of the imagination, also not like it's not asking Paul McCartney to tell you about writing Let It Be again um how what percentage of people were very happy to talk to you what percentage of people did you have trouble tracking down in the first place what percentage of people that you would like to talk to were unwilling to speak to you about this i think story? like uh, probably about a third were happy to talk with me and got on the phone with me in the first couple months of me hitting them up the there was probably a third who said yeah i'll speak with you and then just kept blowing me off until i finally got to speak with them months later and it's quite a frustrating process because you, I actually have to write the book too, in addition to interviewing all the people. Right. And then maybe a third just didn't either said, I'll talk to you and then, and then never did or, or flat out didn't want to talk to me at all. Uh, one of which is no longer with us. So I will never be talking with him. And that is Bismarcky who passed away last year. Um, one of the people I interviewed for the book, Mo Austin, who was the chairman of Warner brothers records, who, um, Cold Chillin did a distribution deal with between 87 and 93. Most of the records on Cold Chillin were through Warner Brothers. Um, Mo Austin actually died last week. I saw uh, that. At the, at the age of 95. Um, so I was fortunate to speak with him just before his 91st birthday at his house in Los Angeles. Um, so, yeah, it's a. it was just a big... Is, is the entire spectrum that you can imagine of of uh, responses, but yeah. I, I, you know, piece together partially oral oral history from direct quotes from my interviews, and then partially my own writing. Uh, I told the story of uh, this uh, wild bunch of people. Um, why did you? I don't want to say, why did you feel like you were the right guy to tell this story? Obviously, you, you weren't the one and only person who could write this. Like, why did you feel so strongly about this that you decided to to go all in? And, and I mean, you're obviously aiming to write an authoritative uh, oral history of this chapter in music that means so much to you. I think there had already been at least two books about Def Jam Records. There was a, an ex excellent book written by Dan Charnas called The Big payback which is about the business of hip-hop which is very def jam centric which as well it should be that was they're the big success story of this era of hip-hop but then there seemed to be only fleeting mentions of cold chillin records and the juice crew in a lot of these books and i think um you know the only two sort of commercial success stories of this uh label were 
Bismarcky, who had a gold album and a platinum single, and Big Daddy Kane, who had two gold albums. But influence-wise, this is one of the most significant stories of what I consider the second wave of hip-hop, sort of the hip-hop in its adolescent stage, just as it's breaking into the mainstream, because you have Roxanne Chante, who makes the first diss record, where she actually names other rappers on her on, on on her records and makes fun of them and then you have this sort of huge rivalry between um boogie down productions krs1 and the juice crew uh, mainly mc shan kind of going at each other like a like a they call it the bridge wars between the boroughs of the bronx and queens and the, and and that sort of that's that that's legendary in hip-hop circles to this day and then you have this amazing posse cut which is the symphony which is uh, Big Daddy Kane, Master Ace, Craig G, and Cool G Rap all on this record together. And that's sort of the gold standard of posse cuts where you have, you know, three or four or five rappers all on a track together. And now, like, it's totally standard to see, you know, featuring is like a, you go onto a rap record and it's like every single song is featuring this, featuring that person, featuring this person. And it's like, this was one of the early examples of that being successful. And then you have Big Daddy Kane and Cool G Rap pushing the art of rhyming to the to the next level because you're coming out of very simple rhyme schemes into much more complicated ones in the mid to late 80s and then you know Bismarcky he's like he he's such a a mercurial figure and 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 so beloved in pop culture and it goes on and on i mean there's like the origins of the Wu-Tang Clan can be tra- traced back to Cold Chillin Records because the uh the genius who then changed his name to the Jizza. His first album is on Cold Chillin' Records. No one bought it, but he's significant having been a, become a founding member of the Wu-Tang Clan. So it's just all these things that all kind of get put into this story that no one had really p- told in, in one chunk before. And then, of course, you know, Bismarcky gets, we'll get to Bismarcky being sued or the record label being sued, but this sort of marks the beginning of sample-based hip-hop with Marley Marl, who's the producer who produced most of these records in the early stages, in the 80s, going into the 90s, and then sort of the death knell, which is, you know, getting uh, a Bismarcky record getting sued out of existence for an uncleared sample. So you have what people call the golden era of hip-hop sort of bookended with the, this this story of... of uh, Cold Chillin' Records. And the Juice Crew is named after Sir Juice, which is a nickname for Mr. Magic, which is a nickname for John Rivas, who was the first radio personality um, who had a radio show on a commercial station, WBLS in New York, that was a hip-hop show. There were no hip-hop radio shows on commercial radio before this guy. And that's really where the story begins. So I've I've given you the cliff notes for the entire book. Yes. <laughs> and we can just go in and 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 laser focus on any one of those things if you want to talk about them. Sure, we'll kind of go through it chronologically. My experience spending a little bit of time with the music which I I gather was the stuff that once they were already in bed with Warner Brothers, right? And they're being distributed by by a major. It's it's like 87 to the early 90s and and to me there's a value to it being 
completely ignorant. You have, I, I have, uh, um, I, I, I just, I'm very objective about this stuff. I really call it like I see it. I, the stuff that I judge to be from the early years of that uh, association with the big record label, we're at the very end of my name's blank and I'm here to say kind of stuff. And by the end of it, it's stuff that like, you know, I know NWA has been released in the meantime and the, the, uh, the chronic isn't that, isn't that far off and it's early nineties stuff. And it's, Yes, it sounds pretty much exactly like the stuff that was going to be massive and break through the mainstream and be, uh, you know, be able to go head to head with the establishment rock and, and, and pop stuff. And all that happens in a very condensed period of time. It's really just a, a couple of years that rap goes rap matures. This is like the, this is like the adolescence of, of rap is what it felt like to me. But even before that, <clears throat> I, I, you know, it, it's so intoxicating. The stories of the things that come from nothing, the happy accidents of people who don't necessarily know what the end goal is. And they're just fumbling with this thing that they're really excited about. You know, the, the go-to example in the rock world is one of the Davies brothers. Or I think it's actually Davis, right? From the kinks is angry at his girlfriend and sticks a knife in a speaker. And then the next time he plugs his guitar and he plays, you really got me. And, Somewhere a nine-year-old Ozzy Osbourne feels a chill down his spine at hearing the first distortion on a guitar track, which is not even actually really true. But there's so much of that in this book, and it's it's so exciting to witness a genre and indeed a world be be born. There's, I mean, just talk a little bit about that, Marley Marl, the, the genesis, the birth of, I mean, it's crazy to say, the birth of, of sampling. Yeah. So um, there are, as I was writing this or researching this, it, there was there are so many parallels between hip hop music in the '80s and rock and roll music in the '50s. No doubt, you have the older generation not even recognizing it as music and mm-hmm. completely disrespecting it. You have that the first maybe three or four years where there's this window of time where major labels don't get it, and so you have independent labels coming in and snatching up. You know, specialty records signing signing Little Richard, which was flash forward. You have Def Jam signing LL Cool J and and whatever, and then you have major labels or Sun Records in the fifties, and then those catalogs either being bought or 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 artists leaving for bigger labels or or make or the bigger labels making deals with the smaller ones, and then I mean it's they're both black music of rock and roll and hip hop. There, there's so many parallels that when people complain about hip hop uh, rappers being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like I have no problem with it because it's almost like the same thing to me, even though it's completely different genres of music. It's the stories are so similar that it just it's like, no, these people belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is so what they went through in the 80s. All these other people went through in the 50s with a different thing. So there's that. And then as far as Marley Marl is concerned, he was a DJ. You know, he would just DJ other people's records, but he was very good at it. And he became the uh, engineer for Mr. Magic's radio show, which I mentioned earlier, which was called Rap Attack. And so Mr. Magic would speak. Marley Marl would be the one physically playing the records and doing mixes. And um, he was also a recording engineer. And that kind of accidentally spilled over into him producing records, which didn't wasn't his plan to begin with. He was just trying to make sort of 
like parodies of previously existing rap records just so he could play them on the radio show because no one else had them because he made them himself. And then sort of uh, these guys in um, these guys who had a record label in Philadelphia, Pop Art Records, uh, the Goodmans, they just recorded uh, one of these records, which is uh, Roxanne's Revenge by Roxanne Chante off of the radio. And so, and then pressed it onto a record without his permission. And then they said, "Oh, here's a bunch of money now that the record exists." And so, you actually hear the a piece of the previous record that was being played at the beginning of the record. If you own the record on the vinyl, it's like everything is done so cheap and dirty. But you know that's part of the appeal of it and the thrill of it. And then Marley Marl ends up sort of creating the template for hip-hop music as i hear it in my head obviously it's gone through many iterations since but you have uh scratched vocal samples as choruses you have uh uh, uh actual sampled drum parts where he would take the the kick drum from one song maybe the snare of another the hi-hat from another and then he would he would sample them like all one second samples so he could he could create a new um uh, uh, drumline using components from other people's records. Yeah, he's no longer then, be- beholden to playing a beat from somebody else's record. He has right. the sound and he can create yeah. the beat. Yeah, exactly. And then and then maybe a a horn line or a melodic piano sample from a record pl- played over that, and then the guy rapping or girl rapping. Um, and that sort of and then sc- scratching that whole template, which DJ Premier and Large Professor and all these people would do going in well into the 90s. Um, it can a lot of that can be traced back to this one guy and um, this one housing project, the uh, Queensbridge in uh, Long Island City, uh, Queens, which is a huge housing project. And a lot of the rappers he worked with just were people that lived in his neighborhood. You know, it's like there was they were lucky by virtue of living so close, living sometimes in the same building as this guy who was making all these records and being really innovative. And then once he gets a name for himself, people come to people flock to him. Bismarcky goes goes from he's a Long Island guy, goes to Queensbridge to find Marley Marl or Master Ace winning a rap contest and the the prize the first place prize is you get whatever eight hours of studio time with Marley Marl. Just so once he gets a name for himself, you know, the people come to him and in the, in the middle, in the midst of this cold chilling records is born from <laughs> this is strange. Well, maybe it's strange for people who think of disco as a very, very different thing or as kind of opposing uh, the kind of opposite to, to what hip hop was doing, but there was a disco label called Prism Records in 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 Manhattan that, um, going back to the seventies, that transitioned into dance music, which is not that different than disco music. Going into the eighties, and they were falling on hard times, and they start putting out, they put out a Bismarcky record. It does really well, and they decide we're going to do uh, a sub label called Cold Chillin, and just have that be for the for the rap music, so that dance and rap can be thought of separately or put in these these separate um uh, under these separate umbrellas and basically cold chillin takes off and prism becomes the sub label it's really this guy len fitchelberg and he joins forces with 
Bismarcky and Big Daddy Kane and all these other guys, uh, MC Shan, Roxanne Chante, their manager, who is Tyrone Williams, a.k.a. Fly Ty, the producer of the Rap Attack radio show. So it's like this closed system where it's like you get on this label, you have me manage you. You're going to get your records played on this radio show that I'm the producer of. It's it was it's very it's it's uh it's almost like they didn't need anybody else until rap, of course, becomes this national and then international phenomenon where, um, you know, you be you start out as big fish in a small pond and then you become small fish in a big pond eventually, especially with West Coast rap blowing up by the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, like you mentioned with the chronic, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, and all so many of the things that happened seemed so idiosyncratic and silly when you know how the story ends. You know, I I often think like, okay, what's the, what's the modern equivalent of this? And it's I'm not trying to compare the the art forms or the quality of the content, but it's like I I think these people may have conceived of themselves much in the same way before the real success came that like a YouTube celebrity might conceive of themselves nowadays, which is I did this thing for fun because me and my friends found it cool. And then I was very, very surprised that there that somebody played it in a bar somewhere and everybody went on the dance floor and holy shit, somebody's gonna pay me to wear some sneakers if I in my next in my next YouTube video. And this is great. And nobody tells you, hey, buddy, if you buckle down, you could make ten million dollars a year doing this. And you know, uh I, I I just always use the YouTube example in my head as a thought exercise of like what people thought of the Beatles when they first came out and, you know, and, or Elvis and what people thought about hip hop at the time. And we might, we, you and I might be doing a pod 25 years from now. We go, would you, would you believe there was a period of time where people did not take uh, Logan Paul's art seriously at all? They would literally just splice ads in the middle of his, in the middle of his videos and just completely interrupt the flow. And you go, well, yeah, cause they're fucking dumb YouTube videos. Well, that's, what these and that was already the that they had success on that level was exceeding the expectations of the I I don't think the artist who gets their record taped off the radio and then pressed onto vinyl and then sold all over the place I don't think their gut reaction is well that's illegal that's not the way this is done I think they go I get seven hundred bucks this is amazing and it's just uh you know when 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 millions are made and people get screwed over that's uh shameful. When thirteen hundred bucks is made and somebody gets screwed over, there's still sort of a little folksy, folksy charm to it. And you know, going back to the sampling thing, the the accidental nature of it. You know, Marley Mall talks about I'm trying to sample this thing and I accidentally got a bit of a snare drum, and I go, oh fuck, I can come to think of it, I can do something like that. I think as you as you chronicle in the book, preceding that, using a guitar delay pedal as a sampler, which for people, it's fairly straightforward. If you've never been around a delay pedal, that's pretty much what most of what the edge from U2 is good for is you play a note and the thing records it and plays it over and over and over and over. You don't think of echo as sampling, but if you yell in a cave, that's kind of your sample coming back at you. And he just had this aha moment that he could take this $60 stomp box for a guitar and he could make a sample from that and you we look at it now in the hindsight of that's so primitive compared to what anybody can do now on their phone but at the time such a quantum leap forward not uh only from the technology that most people had at their fingertips but from what most people would would it would, would ever even occur to them to do with that technology and it's just it it it, it is 
it's very it's it, it's a you have a vicarious thrill of hearing these stories from these people as it as it comes together particularly because so many of them were so young you're talking about this is a 14 year old artist Roxanne Shante. Yeah, who's she's like on her way to like do laundry and she cuts a single that becomes yeah. a star making yeah. performance. That's right. Yeah. Lolita Shante Gooden. And then she's doing an answer record to the UTFO song Roxanne Roxanne. And she becomes they're talking they're talking about a fictitious character who didn't give them the time of day. And she's answers that as the fictitious character. So her name then becomes her stage name, Roxanne Shante. She is the, the character has come to life. So yeah, there's so many things that you'd never see it coming. And going back to the thing about um, a, a delay pedal being yeah. a, be, essentially being a, a sampler. I'm a guitar player and mm-hmm. I use a delay pedal. Yep. I use the line six echo park. I play guitar and sing in a punk band. I, this is we're talking about almost 40 years later. It never occurred to me that a, a delay pedal is essentially a sampler yeah. until learning about what Marley Marl did almost 40 years ago. It's like I have I know what these things are and I can't even make the, the, the mental connection. So, I mean, and also the reason he's looking for all these things and jerry rigging uh, um, equipment together to make the, the stuff is because. The only sampler you could actually buy in the early 80s or mid 80s was called a Fairlight CMI. And it was like one hundred thousand dollars, like literally one hundred thousand dollars in 1982 money, like 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 very, very prestigious recording studios would buy them and that would sit in the recording studio. No one, an individual wouldn't own that. And so he didn't have a choice. I mean, he's not going to buy a Fairlight. He lives in a housing project in, in Queens. So, um, yeah, it's fun. And, and there's so much of that is the technology because the technology, I guess, in rock had been largely set for, I don't know, 15 years or so going up to this. You know, people had guitars and amps and drums and microphones and keyboards. But so many of the stories that you'll hear, I want to say, I've been spending a lot of time with the take on the song uh, Take On Me by AHA. My kids have taken an interest in it. We went to go see them at the Hollywood Bowl the other day where somebody gets uh, one day of recording time at this one studio that happens to have this one synthesizer that's the absolute Cadillac thing that's eight months ahead of what everybody else is using. And that's where these great big hit songs come from. And it's just... uh, the 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 spirit of adventure i'll just say it again is 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 such a a fun thing to put yourself in their shoes um i was as a total idiot when it comes to this stuff surprised to learn um i guess i shouldn't be surprised sugar hill gang always gets the credit for the first rap song like not even remotely i mean i know muhammad ali was rapping blah 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 blah, but like literally apples to apples rep songs released before sugar hill gang right it's only one I can think of, which mm-hmm. is mentioned by TJ Swan in the book. It's a uh, Fatback Band. Fatback Band, yeah. Tim Ki- King Tim Three Personality Jock, which was catchy title. Early 1979. <laughs> uh, it was like March 79 or something like that. And then Sugar Hill Gang was September 79. And the inter- an interesting fun fact, which doesn't really re- relate to my book, that but the the that Fatback Band record was on Spring Records. The son of the owner of Spring Records founded Loud Records 
in the early 90s and signed the Wu-Tang Clan. So wow. <laughs> he started a rap record, his rap record label like his father who put out the first rap record that I can think of. So that's kind of neat. Uh, crack plays a role in this story. Luckily, I mean, doesn't seem, I, as I said, I didn't make it all the way into the into the 90s with this. Doesn't seem like so much of, um, well, put, to put it this way, crack seems like it was kind of a good thing in the very specific regard of this scene where it, it wasn't 14-year-olds the artists themselves necessarily getting addicted to crack, but where was anybody going to come up with the money to record something, press something, distribute something, get an act out on the road? All of a sudden, there was a lot of guys in the neighborhood that kind of had more money than they knew what to do with. And, you know, people always, you know, there's people make a bunch of money doing something boring. Well, I'm going to go buy a baseball team. That's a cool way to, it may not be the most, you know, savvy financial way to spend my money, but that's a cool way to do it. Well, if you have are making more money than you ever dreamt of because of crack, bankrolling some hip hop artists was kind of a, a cool way to spend a little bit of that money, right? Yeah, and actually, some of the recording artists did get hooked on crack, ah. um, which is a terrible thing. Of and uh, some of them sold crack, and the ones who didn't get caught, I suppose. <laughs> That was cool for them. I think Granddaddy IU mentioned that, like, how great it was to sell crack in uh, his city. And oh God, what city is he from? He's in Long Island. Uh, help me out here. I don't know. Um, it'll come to me later and then I'll kick myself. But it's a part of Long Island. Um, but, uh, you know, people did hard time for that shit. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I know, and I know, yeah, that there were there were an older generation of artists. I mean, very specific to mm -hmm. to the 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 Jews crew. It seemed like mm -hmm. at least in the beginning, it was just sort of a financial stimulus. But it, it well, obviously is part of the story. It, yeah, but the cold chilling wasn't financed with drug money. It was Len Fitchelberg was this like white middle. Well, actually, it probably wasn't middle aged at that point. White Jewish guy who had <laughs> to, his parents had a um a a one stop, which is like a sort of like a record distributor where if you're a record store instead of trying to hit up you know 100 distributors you'd go to one which is a one stop and they would accumulate all the records from various labels for the purpose of selling them straight to directly to stores so he grows up kind of in the record industry then he starts prism in the 70s and and he's bankrolling uh cold chilling in the beginning and then it becomes warner brothers records who's bankrolling it so there's not really it's not like the ruthless record story where Eze yeah. sure. is like a drug dealer who finances ruthless with drug money. Um, but that did that did happen in New York as well. Um, but crack made the, you know, cr the crime rate skyrocket. It wasn't a pleasant time to be, you know, walking around late at night in a working class neighborhood in a, a major city in the United States. No, you know? I, I gather as much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. And the other thing that people would do is they would rip gold chains off people's necks that that kind of reached uh, a, f a fever pitch by like 88. And then people, the hip hop communities decided, well, we should stop wearing gold chains around our necks because it's just going to keep <laughs> happening. And then it, it kind of transitioned into Africa medallions and then other stuff. But um yeah, it was a it was a tumultuous time. Kind of makes me think of right now that uh, the streets are are crazy. I can't 
I can't pinpoint, I can't attribute it to one drug. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, out of some of the greatest music is made from people, um, in desperate situations, you know, look at Jamaica, Kingston, trench town, like these people don't have two pennies to rub together and they're making this, they're somehow acquiring musical instruments and making records. Like that's amazing. And that are getting international acclaim. So uh, when when Warner gets involved, there was something I didn't totally get a sense of. Maybe I just didn't make it far enough in in the book. To what extent do you think that was fueled by uh, a sense by, uh, you know, a significant enough number of executives this music is good and this music is going to be a part of the future. And if we are releasing good, potentially popular, high selling music, then rap is a part of that. And to what extent do you think it was sort of like uh, hold your nose and, and wait for the dollars to roll in kind of thing. Like I know that I can't think of specific examples, but you know, there were definitely capital records releasing some rock records and they're like, put the, put the, uh, the idiot and the boss's son on these because we're the Sinatra people, but if we gotta do it, then okay, let that let that give let the guy with the basement office handle it. Like, did Warner uh, before they saw a return on their investment see the validity of the art of the uh, you know? I'm, I'm sure they were taking Richard Marks and John Mellencamp very seriously at the time. Did they put these artists on that same artistic pedestal? It's funny. I was just listening to a piece of my interview with Mo Austin for this book, obviously not every word he said made it into the book, but the yeah. entire interview exists on rocksbackpages.com. Okay. Um, He's such a big it, deal. It's so cool that you talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. And he do didn't do that many interviews in, in his life, but he talked about, he saw the parallel between labels, not taking hip hop seriously in the eighties with being essentially running reprise records for Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra saying uh, zero tolerance for, for rock music, rock and roll music will never be on reprise until finally uh, Sinatra's hand was forced. And Mo Austin said, we're going to go out of business if we don't sign rock and roll records. It's been two or three years and it's 1964 now. So we got to do, if you want to have a record label, we have to sign, we have to get into the rock and roll business. And then they signed the kinks. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I tweeted a quote from Sinatra a couple of weeks ago. Just it was just the most putrid scum imaginable. That's what mm -hmm. rock and roll is to be. Yeah, he was he was yeah. he was not ambiguous on the subject. And so now we flash forward to the '80s. Mo Austin is running the entire show, Warner Reprise, this giant major label in Burbank with several hundred employees. And he's he's been through this before. When Cold Chillin, he he knows he has to get into the hip hop game because just like in the 60s you if you don't put out rock records you're you're toast in the by the you know 87 if you don't put out rap records you're 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 toast it, or eventually you will be so um he saw it as uh something necessary for the label and um it, i don't think i mean i'm sure there were people uh, of the several hundred employees at uh, Warner Brothers Records, who were not fans of hip hop. Of I mean, yeah, but but um, I think it was one of these things where there 
if you get it, you get it. Like what happened with punk in the seventies, Warner, Warner was very early on that. They had, they got repeat, uh, they got a uh, sire records, which had the Ramones and then many other punk bands after that. And it's, and like the, my dad was working at Warner in, in that punk era and in the hip hop stuff later. And he said, you know, there was a hand, there were a handful of people who actually got it. So I'm sure it would have helped if everyone got it, but that's just the way things go. It's for yeah. new genres of music. Of course. No, I mean, no, no. yeah, yeah, right. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, there's, I'll hear stuff, uh, new music now as a 44 year old man and think this is fucking terrible. Yeah, and so just I, I'm just putting myself in the shoes of people in the eighties hearing rap for the, or seventies hearing rap for the first time or punk or going back, even back to rock and roll. Like, it's so different that it's unidentifiable as music or the type of music you'd ever want to hear. Yeah. And everything about it was set up for, uh, you know, I don't want to be overly reductive and just bring this down to race, but just every, it, it was, it was a, it was the perfect music for the white music establishment to hate because all of the traditional um, benchmarks that you had for, is this good? Well, I wouldn't listen to it, but the guy's clearly a very good singer. Not, <laughs> not an option here. You know, the fact that you were literally taking other people's music to begin with, I think in a weird way played into overarching stereotypes, stereotypes about literally black crime and stuff like that. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that. Well, going back even before that, I think, the first grouping of outspoken haters of rap music were uh, middle-aged black people who uh, uh, ran black radio, you mm. know, uh, rhythm and blues radio stations. Oh, right. And sure. Yeah. There's a huge generational rift within the black community of like, you know, my kids or my nephew's generation are making this garbage and we don't want to allow it. And, and it's almost sort of like this, uh, there's there's uh, the black community within the black community. There's this aspirational sort of uh, uh, Anita Baker, Luther Vandross. Like we want to present ourselves as as classy as possible to sort of um, um, push down stereotypes about us being, you know, criminals from the street and, 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 and street urchin type people and, and, and hip hop eventually embraced that. And it was peak kids from the street. It was kids from housing projects and they saw, and, and I think black radio really turned its nose up because they were trying to escape that, those stereotypes that had been cast upon them by, you know, white mainstream society. And then some of the first champions of hip hop were, white college kids who just or and punk rock white punk rock kids in new york who thought this uh this is the next really important rebellious like rebel music you know you have like beastie boys who are a hardcore punk band from new york who are like they discover hip-hop as they're making punk records and think this is the, this is the next thing this is the greatest thing in the world to become a rap group that's that's a the most obvious example of that, but there are lots of people from, you know, who were in punk in into the punk scene in the late seventies, early eighties. Who who, I mean, Debbie Harry, she, she did Rapture. Sure. So it's not exa it's not so cut and dry like you know, 
this is white people being racist against black people and black music. It's 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 more finite than that. There's there's more to it than that. Yeah, you're absolutely right that your point's well taken. Um, the arrival of Yo MTV Raps is a really big milestone in this, I think, because you're still in the the monoculture as we now call it, and you know, there's the way I think one of the big ways that the world evolves is there's uh, if I can get really obtuse here for a second in American politics for a while, it was like everything was sort of like, uh, what were you doing if you're running for president or, you know, what were you doing during Vietnam? Did you serve? Were you a draft dodger? Were you in favor of the war? Were you against the war? We can tell everything we know about this guy. And then like an Obama comes along and he's like, I don't know. I was like two. It's literally got nothing to do with me. And then the world is able to move on from that and shed that past. I was the perfect age for uh, when I start watching MTV. It's like, okay, they play pop music all day. On Saturday night, they play metal. On Sunday night, they play alternative. And I have Monday afternoon or whatever is yo MTV raps. Cool. Got it. There's that's thank you. That's all I need to know. There's four kinds of music in the world. And, and, <laughs> and I didn't know that that show may have been three months old. I couldn't tell the difference between a three month old show and American bandstand, which had already been on the air for, for 30 years. And that was the power that MTV had. I'm not going to say that they made hip hop because they were obviously reacting to a thing. They weren't creating a thing, but but I think even before that music was a standard part of, uh, you know, there were very few acts that got a ton of top 40 mainstream, you know, Casey Kasem only said the names of maybe five rap acts and, you know, before the, the, the mid nineties or something, yo MTV rap to me is this thing is for real. And it's sitting at the table with, with the big boys and a lot of those cold chilling artists, even if they didn't make it all the way to LL Cool J level or, or, or run DMC level, were very prominently featured, at least on that show. Yeah, and and MTV, they really tried to ignore rap as long as they could because <laughs> right, that yeah. MTV raps should have existed three years earlier at right. least. Um, well, and there was sort of a history I, there too with like Michael Jackson was, they mm -hmm. always say they are the artists that broke down the race barrier there in general. Yeah, and I talked to Doug Herzog who was, he was running the show at, at MTV in the 80s and I'm like, so MTV, real? Who was? Who was this? Who was at MTV? Who was trying to like stop this inevitable thing from happening? And he's like, eh, "That was probably me." <laughs> really? Like, I mean, he's not. Yeah, he's not a hateful guy. He's just. I don't know. Like when you're the head of a corporation, maybe you try to play things conservatively a little bit. But um, um, he has a podcast now called Basic about the base about Basic Cable. A very good podcast. But uh, I think there was a, a show called Yo! That was uh, MTV had its own European channel that only got played in Europe and that ex or, or in the UK. And that existed one year before Yo! MTV raps. So it was almost like, oh, this is actually doing well over there. OK, maybe we should actually do this here because like August 88 is when Yo! MTV raps premieres. And that's like, I mean, Aerosmith with Run DMC and LL Cool J, all these huge, huge hits had already happened by the time Yo MTV Raps gets on the air. But it is at the exact moment that Cold Chillin is putting out lots of records by Bismarcky and Big Daddy Kane. So yeah, that was that was helpful for Cold Chillin for sure. Well, yeah, that's just the acknowledgement. Again, I think until that point, there was. You know, I, I I know it really stretches the definition of a novelty record to say that Walk This Way was a novelty record, but I think 
that's sort of, you know, it's like, I don't know, Gwen Stefani might do like a Latin song because that's what people like this summer, but it doesn't mean that that's, you know, there's, there's passing fancies. And I think until, you know, UMTV raps is in the same way that Headbangers Ball was, it was the acknowledgement that this isn't just this thing that pops off something silly for us to dance along to every year or two. There's a scene here, there's a world here, and there's people who need nothing but this in their musical diet, you know, and, and, and that, that, that was significant. Once again, when there was a monoculture, things didn't permeate in those days. Like they can permeate. It was just sort of like you went from not, you went from knowing two rap artists to everybody, at least, you know, and MTV was just a channel you just had on. So even if you weren't necessarily a big fan of UMTV, I, I, I didn't like rap in, in 1989. I watched it a trillion times. It was just mm. on, and it was better than what was happening two channels down on on basic cable. So where does the where does the demise? What what are the seeds of this demise of the demise of this uh, label? You've already touched on the sampling stuff with Bismarcky. How does that all go down? Yeah. So in 1991, Bismarcky puts out his third album, which is called "I Need a Haircut," and there's a song on it that samples "Alone Again." naturally by uh gilbert o'sullivan mm -hmm. and uh, the label actually asked permission to clear the sample and was denied and they put out the record anyway and so well, went to, real, real, went... real quick back up what what was the what was the trajectory of that obviously when people are making things in their bedroom and then playing it in the club nobody's clearing shit at what point does the idea we need to clear stuff come along? How does that sort of biz the business side of that evolve? I know at one point in the book, somebody talks about it was okay if you used one bar of something, but you couldn't use three bars. Like what l legally, what was the standard practice? Like what was the line that was established at that time that Bismarcky and the label crossed? Well, I think even going back to the Sugar Hill days of the whatever 7980, they had to you you couldn't legally play someone else's record on your record right so if it there, was, if it was going to be on the radio and you were going to sell it in stores if you were going to yeah, yeah right. a commercially released thing um you needed the permission of the of the uh, rights holder of the original master that you were using to make your new recording so but the thing is um when rap before rap was that popular people you could get away with it because they would never find out so it was that's almost what like that's what i'm chicken. saying yeah. yeah yeah right 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 it was, it was kind of a game of chicken and there were a few lawsuits leading up to this there was something relating to uh the turtles uh being sampled on a de la soul record uh two years previous and that be, that ended in a lawsuit but the difference was okay now tommy boy records who put out the de la soul record needs to pay the turtles x amount of dollars uh for having done this the difference with the bismarck e thing is uh when the record label was sued part of the deal was the judge said um not only do you have to pay um uh, this huge amount of money but pull you have to pull every album record off the shelves like you have to just remove this record from existence right i remember that yeah yeah which is like uh pretty i don't know if draconian is the word but it was an an overreaction and the feeling was 
from people who were in the courtroom I spoke with that uh, racism did play into that 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 overreaction. Like I, I have no complete, doubt. complete disrespect for black culture and hip hop music. And even though <laughs> what they did by, you know, putting out a record with an, with an uncleared sample called for called for legal action. Of course it did. Someone sampled my record. I, without my permission, I'd be upset. I'd want compensation, but it was just an, it was such an overreaction that it made the record labels paranoid. And so they clamped down. And one of the funnier parts of my book is Warner brothers actually hired someone because this is before Shazam hired someone who knew a lot about music to go through every rap record before it came out to try to try to uh, identify samples so that they could clear them because they were so paranoid about it, rightfully paranoid about it after what happened with Bismarcky. Wait, wait, wait. Do you mean like as opposed to asking the artists themselves, hey, what did you sample on this? Yeah, be, be, in the case in in the case that the artist doesn't come forth with every single sample that was used because that could happen if you think you have to pay a certain if you have to pay all this money for every sample used and you want to keep some of the money you might maybe you're not maybe you're only going to divulge two of the six samples you used in a given uh, song i, I mean yeah, i know right, to right. this day i know Mar mario c who engineered uh beastie boys paul's boutique which is famous for containing something like 300 samples yeah, he says, you just say like 10 times as many samples as most records had at the time. Yeah, he, he said, if you go on the Internet and you look at, you know, Wikipedia or there's a YouTube video where they try to break out every single sample used in every single one of the songs on that album. Sure. He goes, there's there's ones that they still miss. There's ones that I'm taking to my grave or the, you know, the remaining Beastie Boys are going to take to their grave because they're, you know, they didn't want to they didn't want to give it all away. Right, right, right. And you can see both sides of that. On one hand, if I uh, go to market with a bunch of Darth Vader toys, not only am I going to get sued, they're going to they're going to take the Darth Vader toys off the market as well. They're going to they're going to um, the, the, the response will be draconian. But on the other hand, had Led Zeppelin sampled, you know, uh, an Elton John record or for that matter, a Bismarcky sample. Would they have pulled Led Zeppelin's records out of the stores? Certainly not. And that's well, where that, that's that, funny. That, you mentioned Led Zeppelin though, mm -hmm. because they did get into trouble for stealing music, uh, not sampling it, but yeah. playing other people's music. And um they had to pay up. And on subsequent pressings of those records, you see Willie Dixon, for example, credited as a songwriter on some of those songs. Or uh, so they're they are notorious thieves. Um but uh, and I think they should have lost that lawsuit that involved uh, the Stairway to the, Heaven one. Yeah, the Taurus by Spirit. It's just the same song to me. It's the same. Yeah. Well, it's you, you got it. You also need to prove. You know, it's like okay, yeah, they're the exact same song, but you need to prove that they heard it. Oh, Taurus opened for them on the preceding tour. Oh, oh yeah, that's that's oh, a pretty I, bad. I think look. I think when Led Zeppelin first came to the United States, they opened for Spirit. Like this is the band that they're playing underneath. Who's yeah. playing the song Taurus, and yeah. they're. All, Stairway to Heaven magically appears. It's funny. Like, right, and and you have the track record as well of obviously, you know, I mean, Jimmy Page's quotes on it are so cavalier, you know, of e even having been caught with his hand in the cookie jar any number of times. He's like, yeah, I mean, I, I knew enough that if I was stealing something, I had to change a couple notes. Robert was lazy. He wouldn't change the words. Like, that's 
Go look it up. Jimmy Page has said that. It's <laughs> yeah. It's it's it's. Cra- I never know what to do with with acts like them. And, and now at this point, I'm at the exact same point with with Green Day. Um, if I ever speak to Mark McGrath again, I look forward to. I I, I like. Um, uh, I don't think he likes to shit on a bunch of bands that he might run into. So the more I'm like, here's another song Green Day stole. I think I'm starting to make him uncomfortable that he sort of might be forced to admit that, boy, they have a Led Zeppelin-esque track record. But uh, I remember giving uh, Billy Joe credit for uh, Longview. I was like, well, there, that's the weird thing. This is the same way I feel about Led Zeppelin. I'm like half the songs are stolen. I mean, they got sued for some of them. Some of them, it's blatantly obvious. But then there's the other half that nobody's accusing them of stealing. What do you do with a band that's, they they have a genius level uh, catalog, even without the, the thievery, but they also stole a bunch of shit. And 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 that's where I am on, on Green Day, except I'm starting to run out of songs that are very good by Green Day that they didn't steal because I found uh, a song by, uh, I can't think of that act, one of the early ska acts that... Uh, their verse is the verse to Longview. Oh, Operation Ivy? No, I don't know. No, I just no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so sorry. This is like, I'm so fried. Yeah. Um, the, um, no, who's one of the real, the two-tone acts? Oh, the specials or the... Yeah, I think the... it's the specials actually. Yeah. Yeah, they've just got a song. It's it's Longview. Do you think oh Billy, you think Billy Joe heard some specials records before he started Green Day? It's possible. Yeah. Although I don't, I don't, I mean yes people should be honest and pay the people that they're using lyrics and music from but i don't I, I don't think it invalidates i don't think led zeppelin as a whole is invalidated by that because yeah they don't sound like old blues music they sound like a hard rock band from the early 70s so they are adding value or at least changing the way things sound enough where they can exist on their own as a legitimate thing and yeah. obviously rap music obviously Bismarcky rapping over a Gilbert O'Sullivan record doesn't sound like the Gilbert O'Sullivan record. So right. these things should coexist. Um, right. And we just, it's just the uncomfortable intersection once again of art and commerce, because, you know, the, I think the best classical example is there probably was no Homer. There was no one Homer of antiquity. And instead the Odyssey and the Iliad were stories that were repeated and refined and edited and embellished until you came up with this one really durable classic. And before recording music and replaying music on the radio and on MTV and all of that, of course you would be taking the songs that you grew up with and adding your own that this is how standards are this is how traditional music is made and you know I, I like Wyclef a lot and I don't know what Wyclef really brings to the table if he can't just combine five songs <laughs> really that were yeah. already really good on their on their on their own merits um with what he does but on the other hand he does end up with something new and that, that was I did a deep dive one time on Elvis for the for the the same reason because there's just this truism that Elvis just stole black music and whitewashed it and became famous and what I in my you know my own uninformed but objective opinion is rockabilly is not the blues rockabilly can't exist without the blues but Elvis is Elvis is a rockabilly artist and if we can all agree that the world I'm not a huge Elvis fan but if we can all agree the world is a better place for Elvis's music having been in it well I don't know how you're supposed to split up the millions of dollars, but from a purely artistic point of view, it's good that he stole stuff. It's good that Led Zeppelin stole stuff. It's good that Bismarcky 
you know, wrapped over records that he couldn't have made on his own. Like the, the financials of it, the legality of it, that's a whole different story. But speaking strictly from the point of view of art and those of us who consume art, it's good when artists take stuff from each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's innovation. Yeah. Musical innovation to me is just taking something that has already been done and exaggerating it. Let's take this one part of this song and make a whole album just doing that kind of thing over oh, right. and over again. Yeah. Like, I mean, that hip hop is that because it's taking breaks from James Brown records or funk or other funk records, soul records from the 60s and early 70s and just playing the drum break over and over again on, on two turntables. I mean, that's what hip hop is. And, and, and so, you know, that's where it begins. And that's kind of what I mean, if you look at this is a fun thing to do go go to wikipedia and and go through every beatles song and it's like where do they get these ideas i got them from you know Smokey robinson and girl groups and and uh buddy holly and all these things that existed before them they just essentially remix them into a new thing so yeah 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 that's and that's usually the crux of these lawsuits is is what you did transformative enough and what Green Day did on Longview is not transformative enough, in my opinion, to where they started with a song called Drowning by the English Beat. Oh, the beat. The English Beat. Yes. Yeah, right, yes. Right, right. Look it up. Great it band. Up. Now yeah. I got to go back and listen to that song. Drowning. Have, have, it's cool that we can talk about, sometimes I'm on hip hop podcasts talking about my book and I'm like, you know, I like other kinds of music too. So it's kind of cool talking to you where it's like, yeah. You want to go there? We'll go there. Let's talk about other stuff too. But well, and, and it's been fun for me to spend an hour talking about music that I'm woefully ignorant about and uh, exposing my ignorance over and over and over again. Uh, it's been fun. I, I, I really did enjoy uh, going back and spending time with the music just because it was at the periphery of of my life. And I'm sure many people who would listen to this, who will listen to this, will feel the same way. It's like this stuff was going on and you couldn't miss it, but you weren't really uh tackling it head on because it wasn't your thing and now it's just really interesting um it's uh i mean this music may be alive for for you and for many of other people but even if it never was and never will be for you at this point it's just fascinating history and it's 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 the the both the book and the music itself is uh is well worth spending a little bit of time on that level alone i will remind everybody that your book is called Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. Thank you for your time in your book, Ben Merlis. Thank you. So in between the sleepless nights